Today is May 17th, 2020. Welcome to Common Ground. The sermon series we are in is called Easter Hope, the Resurrection of All Things. This sermon is called Resurrecting Relationships, and the speaker is Chantilly Mers Pickett. Enjoy. Well, good, good afternoon. I'm excited to, I guess I, this is an official first sermon. Um, I'm really excited about this text. It's one of my favorite texts um, in the Gospel of Luke. Um, I believe the Bible has always been a communal text. It's always been something read in the hearing of a community and meaning is made in the community. So I want to start by saying, while I love this text and I have some reflections on it, um, I do uh, welcome your thoughts um, to add to it, to amend it, to challenge it even. Um, and I love that type of engagement. So um, we, this is an invitation um, as much as it is um, my own reflections. So I'm going to ask if Chris could put up the text one more time. Um, and you can still, I guess, spotlight me so you can kind of see the text as I'm, as I'm preaching with it, because I'm going to literally move through this text with you and move through the narrative, um, and, and, and invite again, that you, you sort of walk with me and move with me as I go through this. Um, but I want to start with that. It was the Sabbath day and Jesus was teaching and as a teacher, this may not have been his home synagogue or his home church, um, because as we see later in the text, a synagogue leader sort of steps up to challenge him. But he's um, in a synagogue, and I want you to help me imagine that a synagogue was probably not like the like four walls in a building, that in the ancient times, a synagogue might have been an open air space. And, and that these teachings um, were not only for the community, um, but that these teachings were purposely in the public arena. And so we see that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and this version says that a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for 18 years. In some texts, it says that she suddenly appears, and she's bent over, and she could not stand up straight. And Jesus saw her, calls out to her, and says, woman, you are set free from your sickness. And he placed his hands on her and she straightened up at once and praised God. So while Jesus is in this open air sort of synagogue, this woman appears and in the middle of his sermon or in the middle of his teaching, he sees her, calls out to her and calls actually, no, that calls out to her, but calls her to him. And so if you can kind of imagine, imagine like maybe an amphitheater that she's somehow in the crowd. He sees her and calls her towards him. And it made my imagination go a little bit about this woman. Not only is she bent over, but it's quite a spectacle that she in the middle of a teaching would be asked to come forward. And I wonder, trying to place myself in her position, what it might have taken for her to come forward in such a public way. And then it got me thinking about what it might have taken her not only to walk forward, but what it might have taken her to even show up that day to synagogue. 
that she had been disabled and other versions say that she might have been crippled. And we know that she was bent over and we know that her situation, her condition was chronic. But I wonder if the community knew who she was. Maybe there was a time when she, she could stand up straight or maybe the community remembered her long before her illness or long before that tragic accident or, or long before some near fatal fall that caused her to be in this condition. But all we know in the text is that she suffered for a really long time, 18 years. And I don't really know again, but the, the text is silent on this. Um, but I wonder, what did it take for her to get there that day? Did it take every ounce of strength for her to get up and get out of bed? Did she dread how long it might have taken to get dressed? Or maybe what she dreaded wasn't the work it took, but that on this holy of days, she had to face her community of whom she both loved, or of whom she was both loved and rejected. So was it painstaking for her to get out of the door? I wonder. And when she was finally out of the door, what was her journey to the synagogue like? My mind sort of wanders into, did she take the back road to avoid being seen? Or did she take the, road, the, the route everyone else took just hours earlier because that's how much more time she needed to arrive? And we know that Sabbath was a holy day so whatever it took for her to be there, whatever barriers or roadblocks she had to overcome to show up at synagogue, I wonder if they were largely invisible to that community. Whatever barriers or roadblocks she overcame to show up would be largely invisible to people like me who are able-bodied persons. And so perhaps you're listening to me and you're, you're also imagining the journey it took for her to show up to synagogue, and even the journey from go moving from the crowd to the front or to the center of an, an open air amphitheater. But I wanna pause and say that in just these first few verses of this text, if we used our imaginations a little bit, we might, we might find that while her condition may have been visible to the community, something about her suffering was made invisible to the community. While her condition was visible, her suffering was made invisible to the community. Did they know that she had been in the crowd for 18 years in this condition? Did, she, did they know what it took for her to show up that day? Could they even understand the, the shame or humiliation to be called out of the crowd in that manner. So this is why if we read the text too quickly and we jump to the part that she is healed, we'll miss the very verse that disrupts this entire paradigm of shame or isolation or invisibility. If we look at the text, it's sort of in verse 12, we don't have the verses, I just realized that I'm looking at this now. Verse 12 is the point where it says, when he saw her. In fact, verse 12 is incredibly powerful and we can overlook the mere fact that Jesus sees this woman. And we said, I said earlier that Jesus is in the middle of a teaching. 
the text seems to say that just by seeing her, Jesus literally stops whatever he was saying or whatever point he was making. Thanks, Chris. And upon seeing her, upon noticing her, calls her over, right? So never mind the liturgy of the day, never mind whatever he was going to say or what he was planning on saying. He sees her, and the very fact of seeing her disrupts everything. The fact of seeing her, he changes course. He stops and in a split second decides to release her from whatever held her captive. So this brings me to sort of my first point, you know, what does this tell me? I think whenever we choose to see someone who has been made invisible, it is disruptive as hell to the established order. Whenever we choose, whenever Jesus in the text chooses to see someone who has been made invisible, it is disruptive as hell to the established order. And we know this because let's take a look at how certain people react to this disruption. Verse 14 goes on and says, the synagogue leader incensed that incensed. So he reacts in sort of, um, I think incense means me um, angry or just enraged. So why, why would the synagogue leader be so angry or enraged? Was he angry and enraged that Jesus stopped mid sentence or that um, was he angry and enraged and upset that this woman was a distraction to the liturgy um, of that day? Or was he angry that it took 18 long years for her to finally get the help and healing that she needed? Well, the text tells us, no. He was incensed that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Another, um, another Bible verse, I think Bible version, I think NRSV, NRSV says that um, the leader was indignant. And I almost prefer the word, um, I almost prefer the word indignant here um, because beneath the leader's reaction is like this righteous indignation that there was a right way of observing Sabbath and there was a wrong way. Um, there was a lawful way and there was an unlawful way. And to be fair, Observing Sabbath was not just about what was lawful and unlawful, because I don't want to be sort of oversimplistic about making the Pharisees as, you know, painting the Pharisees as these legalists um, and Jesus, who was really about some freedom, freedom of the law, you know, or the spirit of the law. And what I do want to point out is that Sabbath was really core to Jewish identity. And I want to also pause and say that that in first century Judaism, you know, the out, the, the, the background of it, the backdrop of it was the Roman Empire. So, right, so the Jewish people were a conquered people. Um, they were on, as, as I often say, the underside of history. Um, they were mostly of a peasant class. So if you were from the rural part, like Jesus was in Galilee, you were tilling the feeds, uh, tilling the fields um, to feed the empire. You were the day laborers. Um, you were working um, as um, farm help. Um, you were tilling the land. And so when you're in the context of um, an empire and you are conquered, you are conquered subjects, um, it is very important for you as a community to maintain a sense of identity. Um, and this is why Sabbath is so core to not just um, 
spiritual and religious practice, it was core to who they were. And if, and if you, and if you're under empire, I mean, who are you, if not for your customs, your stories, your traditions and your rituals, which are things that can't be taken away from you? You know, who are you, um, aside from the songs that you sing that carry you through suffering and struggle? Um, so I don't want to be oversimplistic and sort of paint the Pharisees as, as sort of these legalists or traditionalists, um, because I think they're also wrestling with how are we a distinct people and how are we separate um, from our oppressors? And so I'm also coming into this story and, and wanting to just sort of make a, like a pause that we are outsiders to the Jewish tradition. I mean, unless you're a practicing Jew and I don't know that, please tell me. Um, we would be considered Gentile Christians. Um, and so I'm entering the story with a little trepidation because this is an insider debate on the Sabbath. Um, and like as a reader of the text, we're sort of, you know, getting led into that, that sort of insider debate on what was lawful and what was unlawful in the Sabbath. So I just wanna be mindful of that. So the synagogue leader back to the text says, you know, there are six days during which work is permitted, come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath day. It's what you would expect a synagogue leader to say, who is tasked with protecting and observing the Sabbath. But remember I said earlier that whenever we choose to see someone who has been made invisible, it is disruptive to the established order. And the way that Jesus chooses to heal this woman is so disruptive. And the synagogue leader sort of says it, you know, she gets healed and imagine we're in an open air amphitheater, then the synagogue leader sort of stands up and makes this public declaration. Hold on, hold on. You know there are six days during which work is permitted wouldn't you all agree crowd, right? Like, it's like, you know, encouraging the crowd to sort of say, well, come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. So how Jesus responds in this open air debate is really important. And the text or the author of the, you know, Luke's text wants, you know, us to sort of note like how then Jesus responds. But before we go into Jesus's response, again, my imagination goes into the synagogue leaders. Like, what was so disruptive to the synagogue leader? And perhaps it's back to this sort of theme of visible and invisible, is that in fact, maybe as a religious elite, he was not conditioned to see her. He was not conditioned to see a woman's plight, or he was not conditioned to see her suffering and maybe prioritize this suffering in this religious community. And while I run the risk of dehumanizing the synagogue leader, I believe there is some sort of lesson here for us that each one of us is conditioned by society in different ways to see and to not see. And when I do my work with um, mostly, I would say like white Protestants, and then occasionally we'll get um, some of our education work is with folks that are not Methodist or from, I would say like AME Zion or other groups, um, that are more, I would say, from the tradition of folks who come from a Black tradition or from a Latino Pentecostal tradition, I find it whenever I do these texts, I find it so interesting what is made visible to some folks and invisible to others. And I wonder sometimes um, that 
actually, no, I don't wonder. In fact, I kind of sort of believe this as the more I do this work is that what is rendered invisible to some of us is often an account of our privilege. Um, because when we talk about privilege, and I think we say that a lot at Common Ground, it's like this unearned, you know, benefit of being close to power. Um, and so for me, as a temporarily able-bodied person, you know, I'll, you know I, I'll walk into a room and look people straight in the eyes and expect to be taken seriously. Um, I, um, I'm not seen, you know, as a liability in my agency. Um, I am not seen as lacking of intelligence. Um, I'm not targeted by um, pharmaceutical companies, high premiums. I'm not denied healthcare for a pre-existing condition. Um, I'm not, as an able, temporarily able-bodied person, not conditioned to even notice. Oh wait, I'll take it a step further. I'm not even conditioned to having my day disrupted by the needs of someone else who's differently abled than I am. Right? Think about the way we live our days. And if you're not living with a chronic illness or a chronic, you know, or a disability, um, but that, but that, and, and I'm even thinking about COVID-19 right now, that there are healthy people who feel inconvenienced to wear a mask or inconvenienced to be told how to breathe or, or what to wear in public spaces. And I'm always struck by the ways in which we cannot see often an account of our privilege. And in fact, we refuse to see on account of our privilege. Or um, another example would be, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to me raising flags in my agency, you know, a predominantly white um, Protestant denomination for upholding a culture of whiteness that can often prioritize the voices of my white counterparts, I am being seen as disruptive or counterproductive or, oh, this is my favorite. You're not a team player, right? Um, so because my experiences as a person of color is largely invisible in a society built on white supremacy, my colleagues and the institution that you know, pays me is therefore con conditioned to see my white counterpart as more intelligent, more worthy, more authoritative. Right? And this is a constant battle. It's a constant inner struggle and inner battle to actually just simply be seen. And I mean, I have to tell you, for those of you who are working from home and have, again, the privilege of working from home, I kind of find it sometimes freeing to not have to go to work and move through the culture of whiteness <laughs> and maleness all the time. Um, there is something a little bit of, of privilege in being home, being able to work from home. And also there's a, there's a bit of free, like freedom that I feel not having to navigate, you know, minefields all the time. Anyway, and so at any attempt, um, and this is, the, this is the part that I really want to hit home, is any attempt at making the unseen reality of oppression visible is going to be utterly disruptive. And the response to making the unseen realities of oppression visible is always going to be resistance, gaslighting. It's going to look like um, you're not respect, you know, you're not being respectful. Um, 
it's going to look like um, it's going to look like um, consequences, um, insubordination. I mean, all of those responses to me are normal responses when the established order is being disrupted, right? When when um, those who are seen in positions of power and authority are now being challenged oftentimes by those who are in the need of most healing. You know, we, call, we say, oh, marginalized or at the fringes, but it's the people who need the most healing, the folks who need to be whole right now, not some other future who are demanding the change happen within their institutions or happen within the governments or in the different, you know, systems are often going to be portrayed as not team players, disrespectful, disruptive. Um, and that's sort of what is, you know, become like aware in this text. And what draws me to Jesus, which again, why I probably, I mean, I love Jesus and I love him more when I understand him more in his Jewish context, but I kind of also see Jesus as kind of like, um, um, like a little bit of ninja, you know, like um, I think of Bruce Lee who says like, um, we read this recently in the Emergent Strategy of be like, be like water, where something comes his direction and he has to sort of maneuver around it, but in order to teach something without telling people exactly. Anyway, so let's go into the text. So he maneuvers in a ninja-like way, but in verse 15, you know, Jesus replies, after being called out in public for healing this woman, saying that he shouldn't do it on this day, but the other six days is fine, but just not on this day. So the Lord replied, hypocrites, don't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from its stall and lead it out to get a drink. Hmm. Then isn't it necessary that this woman, a daughter of Abraham bound by Satan for 18 long years, be set free from her bondage on the Sabbath day. So in this moment, when he is literally being demanded to have a rebuttal because he's being challenged in open air sort of public debate, he first calls them hypocrites, which if you're trying to convince people in positions of power to see your side, you probably don't want to call them that. <laughs> um, but then we see that he goes on and, and makes this argument. And this argument is a very typical Jewish argument. And I'm gonna probably butcher it, but it's called Cal the Homer, where an argument is made from a minor to a major. So if something is true in a minor matter, they say, how much more will it be true for a greater, more important major matter? And so by using this tactic, Jesus is exposing something largely invisible that society has conditioned us to see this woman as less worthy of healing than your livestock. That in the same way, we would pull out an ox or a donkey to give it a drink, but somehow we don't think it necessary for this woman on the same Sabbath day to be released from her bondage. And that even the question, so the question at hand is not whether or not they would, this is lawful work. 
the question or lawful observance of Sabbath, the question is, is she not worthy, more worthy than your livestock? Right? Is she not more, is she, is she not more worthy than your livestock? And it makes me think of, of um, like right now in, like when I think of public protests that, that white society, you know, when I compare this to sort of whiteness in our society, that white society will often get angry when black folks are protesting being murdered, but they won't get angry that black people are being murdered, we'll get angry because the way that we're protesting is disruptive or disrespectful. Or right now in COVID-19, you know, I think about how we can pay respects to essential workers who are farming our food and working at our grocery stores and caring for the sick and the dying, but we won't see them enough to grant them citizenship. That people are fighting right now for this, this next stimulus package just to it, for it to be offered to immigrants who still pay federal taxes, who still pay taxes sales tax, all the things that we pay for in taxes, they pay for as well. But to see them as worthy enough for those benefits, right? So we are conditioned to see people as less worthy. And that's not just those people out there. I think the challenge is that that stuff is in me, right? Like who I see is worthy of the privileges I have, that stuff is in me. It's not just for the people in the text, it's for all of us. So um, I'm going to wrap up here. I'm noticing my time, but um, a couple things that I want to just sort of make a note is that at the end of this text, Jesus invokes this woman as a daughter of Abraham, right? Which makes her, by invoking that, it makes her an heir to all the privileges and promises of the people of Abraham. So he's essentially reinstalling her into her rightful place in the community, full stop, no strings attached. And contrary to societal conditioning, she is no one's property. She is far more worthy and valuable than even your livestock to be made whole on the Sabbath day. And by doing this, anytime we make something visible that was made to be invisible, it's gonna just be disruptive. And it's gonna be disruptive to oftentimes to laws that are put in place to benefit the folks who are have the most power. Um, and so is Jesus disrupting things just to disrupt things? And is he breaking laws just to break the laws? Like, I don't think so. Um, and you know, okay, maybe that's interpretation that I'm saying, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, but I'm, I think that Jesus, is taking a moment like this to make something visible that oppression has rendered invisible. And every time he disrupts the established order, it's gonna force us, force us, you, me, those people in the crowd, right? Greater, larger society to question, why was that so disruptive? Why was that so uncomfortable? Why was that so awkward? And perhaps it pushes us to see a little bit more of ourselves, a little bit more of the things we have rendered invisible. I wanna leave in a curious place of, of how do we continue or how do we create, even in virtual spaces, um, that degree of welcome and generosity and safety. Um, but I think it begins with us 
taking an inward look um, in the places that um, that are harder to see in ourselves. Um, you know, like I, I, I would go on and a whole, uh, I would love to go on a whole list of in the last five years, the ways that I have been made aware of my own privilege in often very painful ways. Um, you know, um, and ableism has been something that has been um, more apparent to me in just as of, I would say in having children, um, like learning to navigate a whole train system and a city system while being like having a hard time being mobile um, and being reliant on elevators and escalators and um, that that experience as a temporarily able-bodied person has made me more aware of just like the city is not accessible or equipped for people with different abilities. Um, and it should make us want to work harder or strive to make it more accessible. But I wonder about this community, and I'm just going to end there, just how we want to create a space um, for folks who, um, who need this to be a safe place, you know. So I'll end there. Um, thanks, everyone, for just um, joining me in that, going through the story and the chat box. I appreciate your reflections, um, and I hope that we'll be thinking more about this as we go. Um, I appreciate you all.